Hey, all right, I'm excited. I'm excited because this morning I get to do one of my favorite things, and that is start a study through one of the books of the Bible. We don't do that very often. A lot of our sermons are topical, and we take our series uh, from topics, and we just ended one that was a topical series. But this is a series that's going to get to the root of a lot of things, and I'm going to talk to you about that uh, a little bit later as we get into this message. But uh, I'm going to start this brand new series, and we're going to take a long look at my favorite book of the Bible. I'll get into a minute, in a moment why it's my favorite book of the Bible, uh, and you'll probably understand it uh, as, we, uh, <laughs> as we discuss this a little bit. Now, if you've got your Bibles, go to the New Testament book of James. The New Testament book of James, if you're wondering where James is, find Hebrews and hang a right, and you will end up in James. Now... As I begin to preach this message this morning, I need you to understand a couple of things. Uh, We're going to be studying it for several weeks. As a matter of fact, it's going to take more than a couple of months to get through these five chapters. It's only five chapters, and you can read it yourself in under 30 minutes. I encourage you to do that because the more you get God's Word into your life, the more God's Word starts changing you. And this morning is going to be nothing more than an introduction to this book because I need you to understand, number one, who wrote it because his story is going to be important as we engage this book going on because you're going to need to know why James says what he says. And the reason he says what he says is because of the perspective that he holds and his life. So... The theme of this sermon series is unsafe places. Mm. Unsafe places. Now, there is a culture shift going on in case you haven't noticed it. If you've been sleeping a lot lately and don't have a phone or an internet service. There's a lot of cultural shifts going on. And there's a movement that we have been engaged with that is trying to establish something called safe spaces. It's happening on college campuses across this nation. It's actually happening in workplaces. They're trying to establish safe places or safe spaces. And what this actually means is exactly what it sounds. A bunch of people who all agree with each other get together in one location And they don't let anybody come in and say anything, do anything, or challenge their beliefs in any way that upsets them, hurts their feelings, or goes against what they already think. Their safe spaces are intended to be a place of protecting their feelings. They don't want anybody to say or do anything that will uh, cause them uh, to feel some kind of way, uncomfortable or stressed or challenged. But I can tell you as a Christian that I've been following Jesus long enough and he does not afford me the luxury of safe spaces. As a matter of fact, we're ordered to go into highways and hedges and compel folks who don't think like we think, who don't believe what we believe, who don't dance like we dance, who don't shout like we shout, who may not even appreciate the message, but he compels us to go into these unsafe places as sheep among wolves and compel them to come in. So that's why I'm excited to begin this book study with you because it is my favorite book of the Bible. When I first got saved, I read through the Bible at breakneck speed, and my favorite two books Both have something in common. In the Old Testament, it's Ecclesiastes, but my favorite all-time book is this book of James. I like James. James tends to be a little snarky. He's very blunt. He's somewhat sarcastic. And above everything else, in five chapters, he is all up in your face. Matter of fact, he reminds me of a guy. And maybe that's why I appreciate James so much. But what this book does not teach is how to be safe as a Christian. As a matter of fact, his book doesn't train us to sit in churches on Sundays holding 
hands with each other in our holy huddles and singing kumbaya. He gives us instructions on how to be dangerous to the kingdom of darkness. He gives us instructions on how to live our Christian life out loud and how to be a demonstration of Christ's glory everywhere we go. Here's his idea. It's a strange concept in the world that we live in today. James's idea is this. If you're going to claim to live or if you're going to claim to be a Christian, live like one. Oh, I know that's a drastic change from what we hear in most church pulpits these days. But James's whole idea is uh, if you're going to claim to be a believer, it should show up in more places than where you are on Sunday. I'm charged up over what we're going to learn together. I'm already on week four of this sermon series, so I'm already, I'm way ahead of you. I'm finishing up uh, chapter one already. How, how about that? You say chapter one, four week, one, two, three. Pastor can't do math. Well, you'll find out this morning we're not even going to get through one verse. So uh, <laughs> we, we, we're going to take our time because there's so much to dissect in this book. James tries to get you to display out there what you say you believe in here. That, that's James's entire message and his entire book, his five chapters are devoted to getting you to examine yourself, change what needs to be changed, and go out and live a Christ-like existence in front of people. Are you ready for this? I'm going to warn you up front. For those of you that don't know me well, haven't been here very long, haven't heard too much of my preaching, I'm going to warn you up front, this morning's message is going to be tied to tonight's message. And both of these messages are heavy. If this is your first time here, I don't apologize, but come back next week and you'll get a lighter mess version of me. But we're going, to be, we're going to be examining some heavy duty messages both this morning and tonight. Because tonight, at the end of service, we're going to bury some things up here. And there's going to be new births up here. And it's not going to be like any other baptism service that you've been to where people are just getting saved and making confession. And it's an assembly line where people are getting pictures and photo ops and moving on. There's going to be healings that take place up here from emotional traumas and from, from, from backsliding. But it's also going to be physical healings and mental healings and, and because it's going to be a legitimate uh, extension of the altar service. And it's going to pass through the water and some of the stuff that you carry in here are going to be washed off of you. And you're going to move it. So I'm warning you now, if, you, if you're coming to church tonight, bring an extra change of clothes. Bring some towels. Pastor, I got baptized a long time ago, and that might be your problem. More on that later. Some of us have been baptized for a long way. We've been in the way, as we used to say in the old church, for a long time. But you might, by the Holy Ghost unction, end up in that pool tonight. So I'm telling you now, if you're coming to church, just go ahead and put an extra change of clothes in. Because the Holy Ghost has been dealing with me now for six weeks about this service. It's going to be unlike any baptism service that you've ever been a part of. So come excited. I'm going to ask people if they would show up tonight at 530. I know that there's going to be a praise team practice. But just saturate this room in prayer. Because I'm believing for miracles in this house tonight. So I'm going to be here at 530. And anybody that wants to come and join in, just find a place. Walk around. However you want to do it. However you pray. However you feel led to pray. Do that. But I'm going to warn you up front that we're going to deal with some heavy, heavy uh, messages, both this morning and tonight. I don't apologize for it, but I, I know it's going to be a shock to some of you because nobody's preaching this stuff anymore. I, I, don't, I don't preach it as often as I used to. There's a reason for that. But nobody's preaching this stuff anymore. So it's going to be a shock to some of your systems. So go ahead and look at a neighbor and say, just hold on. I'm right here. Yeah, if you, need to, if, you need, if you need some emotional support when I get into this, just hold the hand of your neighbor if you need to. James chapter 1 and verse 1. This letter is from James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stop right there. That's as far as we're going today. This book, this letter is from James, a slave of God and of the what? The what? 
Lord Jesus Christ. Put that little terminology in your spiritual pocket. I'll come back to it in a minute. This book has been debated for centuries, mostly because it's not like any other New Testament book. It is the most practical book of your Bible. It's not like Ephesians that gives us all of this spiritual doctrine. It's not like Romans who goes even deeper into doctrine and tells us why we are saved and and how our sins are washed away. No, no, no. This book is different. When you study the Bible, all of the books fall into literary styles. There's prison epistles. There's pastoral epistles. There's, uh, uh, there's eschatology, which is apocrypha, which is study of the end times. But there's this book, there's this study of wisdom literature. James is considered wisdom literature. If you've ever read, read the Old Testament book of Proverbs, that's wisdom literature. It's kind of like spiritual fortune cookies. You just get all of these little tidbits. It's like every verse is something that, oh, I want to write that down. Oh, I want to write that one down. Oh, man, that's good. I want to. It, it, it doesn't go deep. It's very practical. It keeps everything, it keeps you on your toes and reads very, very quickly. These spiritual one-liners that James gives us. And, and, and James isn't as interested as defining what you believe as he is that you behave like you believe. This is why I like James, and this is, in, this is why I intentionally positioned this series right after Relevant Faith. Because this book is the best source that we have to teach us how to live out our faith. In these five chapters, there are 11 main themes. We're going to go through all 11 of them at some point. There's enduring hard times, facing temptations, responding to trouble, confronting bias and racial and economic biases, being a Christian in a non-Christian world, controlling your tongue, Maybe I should say that one twice. Controlling your tongue. Resolving conflicts God's way. Guarding yourself against greed. Having patience. Living with sickness and physical limitations. And receiving correction. Everybody's favorite. So you see why people would enjoy this book because it's like a how-to guide of Christian living. And one of the reasons that I believe that this book is fascinating is because of the first line that I read you. I'm going to read it again. This letter is from James. James is fascinating. That's why I'm going to spend all morning trying to break down for you this book as an introduction. There are a few Jameses recorded in the New Testament. One of Jesus' big three disciples was named James. It was Peter, James, and John. But this is not that James. This book, a letter, is from James. The James who wrote this book was the little brother of Jesus. How many of you, some, some, of, you, some of you that was a shock because you were raised Catholic? Anybody raised Catholic in here? Okay, you heard Semper Virgo. Semper Virgo was taught to you forever virgin. I'm about to shock your system, I'm sorry. And when I was studying world theology, when I was getting my degree, uh, and I I was studying world theology, I was already a grown man, married, uh, and a pastor, and, and, and I read that they taught Semper Virgo, always virgin. And I probably shouldn't say this, which probably means I'm going to. But as a grown man and a husband... I read that, and I said, poor Joseph. Because, I mean, it's good to marry a virgin, but it ain't so great to be married to one. But if you read the Bible, you'll find out that Mary had other babies. Okay? After Jesus was born, Mary actually had several more kids. She had a big family. It says in Mark chapter 6 
that they came to Jesus and they started doubting who Jesus was. And they said, is this not just that carpenter's son, the son of Mary, the brother of James? I mean, unless Mary went down to the orphanage, something happened. Then it mentions a few other brothers, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. It says, are not, don't we know her sisters as well? I can hear somebody in the background going, oh, I graduated with Jesus' sister. He ain't all that. So he has brothers. He's got sisters. Jesus came from a large family. You have to understand. And there's a reason I'm telling you all of this. There's a reason I'm introducing this book in such a manner. Because as we start getting into the, to the rest of these chapters, you're going to want to know who James was. Because his family was extraordinary. Let's think about this for a minute. In addition to Mary and Joseph, there's James. There's another brother named Judas, whose shortened name is Jude. He also wrote a book of your New Testament. In other words, Mary did good. She had two sons that wrote books of the Bible and one son who was God. Good job, Mary. We're going to let you teach the uh, how to raise godly children life group. Amen? And in addition, Jesus had an uncle named Zachariah who was a priest. His mother was Elizabeth. And then they had this weird son who baptized people in Jordan water. He was probably like homeschooled. Because, you know, he wasn't like all the other kids. He ate bugs and honey. Wore fur coats even in the summertime. Spent all his time down in the muddy Jordan River. So, so he, was, he was out there. He wasn't like all the other kids, but, but he was powerful. Jesus had a big family and a powerful and a godly family. But what's interesting with James, and this is where I want to begin teaching you something. What's interesting about James is how his relationship with Jesus affects this whole letter. First of all, you need to know, when you hear that James was the brother of Jesus, it's easy for you to look at verse 1 and say, well, of course, of course James is a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. But not so fast. Because while Jesus was alive, we know for certain that James did not believe in him. He did not believe that Jesus was God. He did not believe in him being the Messiah, and he did not believe he was the Savior. John chapter 7 tells us that Jesus' brothers were mocking him. John clearly says that his brothers did not believe in him. They thought he was crazy. They thought Jesus was a lunatic. They didn't want to have anything to do with him and did not want to be affiliated with him because they thought he had lost his mind. Which is, hard to under, which, which, which is hard to understand on one hand because you and I read the Bible in reverse. We know who Jesus is. But James was having to live through it. He was the brother of the Son of God. And in one sense, it makes it, it, you would think, well, surely he would believe that Jesus is who he says he is. But don't you know that the hardest people to impress are those closest to you? The hardest people for you to impress and to put on are people that are related to you. Let me put it to you like this. If you think about it for a moment, wouldn't it be awesome to be Jesus' brother? Yes and no, probably. Right? Yes, it would be awesome, but there's a downside if you think about it. Because the Bible says Jesus never sinned. He never made a mistake. But when you're his little brother, that's not miraculous. That's just annoying. Think about it. When you're little kids playing in the yard together, you don't care if he can perform miracles. He ain't never wrong. <laughs> how, many, how many of you are a brother or you have a brother? Let me see your hands. Okay. There's a lot of you. So you argue with brothers, right? Brothers argue with each other, and you argue with brothers. That's what you do. Can't you imagine James? He's arguing with Jesus. He's like, I disagree. Jesus is like, probably shouldn't. You know, you're wrong. I'm always right. Can you imagine how annoying it would be? 
that every single thing he said was perfect? Some of y'all would be like, I would not want to be married to Jesus. That is, I thought I'd want that Jesus is the perfect man, but I don't want to be married to Jesus. He's never wrong. Every time he got in a fight or an argument with Jesus, Jesus was right. Can't you hear Mary from the other room? Maybe she's cooking dinner. Boys, I hear you cutting up in there. Are you fighting? James, can you just go ahead and whoop yourself? I'm busy. I'm sure you're wrong. I mean, it had to be, it had to be different growing up with Jesus, right? Just spank yourself, James. I'm sure it's your fault. But nobody knows you like your family. Maybe they shared a bedroom. Joseph wasn't a rich man. I'm sure that they had to share rooms together. They spent weekends playing games together. Let me ask you a question because some of you grew up like me, kind of poor. Did anybody ever get a present for Christmas that you were supposed to share with your sibling? What kind of wars did that start? Do you remember? I hated it. When I would see it on the name tag when it was addressed to me and my brother, I was like, oh. Whatever it is, I ain't never going to get it. He was bigger than me, older than me, stronger than me. I was never going to get to play with this thing. Whatever it was, it was all his. Might as well just gave it to him. I mean, what kind of... <laughs> <So> <laughs> uh, maybe they got one of those PlayStations for Christmas one year with one controller. Remember that? Oh, that's a lot of fun. That, that, that gets somebody hit every single day. Huh? Probably went fishing, and here James has got his pole and his worms. Jesus is walking on the water. <laughs> scooping up fish, got money in their mouth. It can't be that fun being Jesus' little brother. Not only is he his brother, he's his little brother. <laughs> so, so they're doing life together. And here in verse 1, he calls his big brother Jesus the Lord. How many of you would call your brother Lord. Some of you would testify in court that he might be the brother of Satan, but you would not call him God. <laughs> so think about this for a moment. Here's James writing this letter about his brother, and James knows Jesus better than anybody. This is what I wanted to get into your spirit. Because if Jesus was a liar... James would have been the one to point it out. James did not believe in him. James did not confess him as Lord. James did not believe his message. And he grew up with him and knew him better than anybody. If Jesus Christ did not raise from the dead, if Jesus Christ did not live a sinless life, if Jesus Christ was not God in the flesh, it would have been his brother that would have spilled the beans. But the Bible tells us uh, very clearly what happened that changed James's life. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is describing what happened after Jesus rose from the dead. Here's what he says in verse 3. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the Scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead and on the third day, just like the Scripture said, he was seen by Peter and then the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Verse 7, then he was seen by John, James and later by all of the apostles. Let me lay this out for you. Jesus has resurrected, and he is strategically making his appearances to people he knows need to see him alive. He specifically shows up to his little brother who did not believe in him. Let me paint the picture for you. He shows up and shows his little brother that everything he ever told him was true. I don't know if Jesus was a I told you so kind of guy. But this was his opportunity. Because Jesus rose from the dead and showed his little brother specifically. Because Jesus will always show up. When you have doubt, when you have unbelief, 
When you are wondering if God is who he says he will be, if you're wondering if he's a healer, if you're wondering if he's the lover of your soul, if you're wondering if he's the person that puts things back together, the bridge over your troubled water, if you ever get to the point where you wonder if Jesus can do all the claims that you believe and your faith has gotten thin because of everything that you've been going through, rest assured Jesus is about to make an appearance. I don't know who this is for. This is not in my notes. But you need to realize that he's about to show up in your unbelief because when there's a mountain of problems in your way you're about to see Jesus split that mountain in two and show up on the scene to prove to you that your belief was not in vain because every word that proceeds out of his mouth was truth and when he said he can make a way a way is on the way and when he said that he would be a bridge over troubled water the bridge is being built and you may not see it and you may not know how it's going to happen but you hold on to the word that you have heard Jesus speak because he's about to show up and show you who he is. Now, I don't know how it happened. I don't know, I don't know what happened between James and Jesus, but this experience changed, changed James' life forever. And this is where I need to start preaching. And the reason I want you to get this is because James had the exact experience that every person in this room who claims to be a Christian must have. There is no other way to become a believer unless you see Jesus as he is. I'm, I'm, I'm going to break this down for you. You have to go from knowing what Jesus did to seeing him as he is. James knew what Jesus did. If anybody knew, James knew, he was probably sick to death of knowing. Oh, of course Jesus got straight A's. Of course Jesus never got sent to detention. I mean, he was constantly witnessing my God in heaven. He was constantly witnessing the good deeds of Jesus. He was constantly exposed to the power of Jesus. But he had never had his eyes opened to who Jesus is. My God in heaven. See, see what James does and why I want to preach this book to you is because James comes along and defines what a believer is. He draws a line of demarcation between posers, and believers. Because just like James, a great many folks sit in church every week of every month of every year for multiplied years. And they witness the acts of Jesus. And they're close to the power of Jesus. And maybe they shout. And maybe they huck and buck. And maybe they do a lot of rigmarole. And maybe they go through the motions. And maybe they even sing the songs. And maybe they even stand in pulpits and preach. But they've never had their eyes open to see this man Jesus and say yes to his... Uh, See, I told you this is going to be a tough one because you have to see him for who he is, the resurrected Lord. He cannot just be Jesus, my homie. You got one of them shirts? Burn that thing. <laughs> it's near blasphemy. He ain't your homie. He is El capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. When you diminish him into something you understand and, and you start bringing him down to your level, then you will never reach the level that he's trying to pull you up to. And what you are in fact doing is instead of you being made in the image of God, you're trying to get God in the image of you. And many folks uh, still to this day don't live in the power of the resurrected Lord because they have said a prayer and they have been in the water and they have knelt at the altar and they've had oil put on their head but they have never opened their eyes to see him as the Lord of their... I'm glad you're still clapping because it's going to get tougher from here. Becoming a Christian 
is more than saying a prayer. Raising your hand at the end of service or coming to church. You can do all of those things and still be as lost as a goose in a hailstorm. Because being a believer is something supernatural that takes place when you see him for who he is. This is what happened to James. He was a skeptic. He did not believe his brother. And he even, he even accused Jesus of being demon-possessed. Now, did you hear what he said? This letter is from James, a slave. He has went from skeptic to slave. He changed his entire dichotomy of the way he thought about this man. Because when you truly see Jesus, you are dramatically changed. Not all at one time, but you're not just being rehabilitated. You are a new creature. Let me explain it to you because some of you have never heard this kind of preaching before. Let me explain something to you. This building, this building looks fantastic. And I don't just say that because I did most of the work. But when we walked in here, this place didn't look this way. It looked neglected, dirty, ne dilapidated, and way behind the times. And I did a lot of work, and I built these walls, and I painted everything, not all by myself, but we put carpet on the floor, and we've, we've hung lights, and we've we put, we put uh, media walls up, and sound systems, and painted and redecorated bathrooms, and took urinals out, and put urinals in, and put sinks in, and lights in, and underneath all of that cosmetic change, is a 90-year-old building because we rehabbed a building. We didn't build it new. And some of you are sitting under the sound of my voice and you have been struggling for years to do right because you think Christianity is God rehabbing you. And so you're constantly trying to put new paint on. You're constantly trying to build new walls. You're constantly trying to redecorate one of the rooms in your spirit. But God did not come to rehab you. Jesus didn't die to rehabilitate you. He said you would be something brand new that you never were before. See, what I'm trying to tell you is some of you are living under the same bondage that I grew up under and you are constantly struggling to follow a set of rules but Jesus didn't die to make you more rules. He died to liberate you and set you free because you're going to so fall in love with him that you don't want to hurt. See, see this, is why, this is why this message is unsafe because, because listen to how Paul described in Acts 26 what happens when your eyes get open. Listen to what he says. He says, moving from darkness to light. He describes it like this. Turning from the power of Satan to the power of God. That sounds intense. He described it like this. To receive forgiveness for our sins. To be given a place among God's people. And to be set apart by your faith. Have you had that experience? Has that happened to you? I'm not asking you if you try to live a good life. I'm not asking you if you're trying to be a good parent. I, 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 I'm not asking you if you volunteer at the church because all of those things are great, but that doesn't make you a Christian. There are a lot of people that do all of those things, but they are totally lost. Do you realize that there are folks in this world that do more by accident than some of us do on purpose? And they're not even believers. What I'm talking about happened to James because he knew who Jesus was intellectually. Much better than we do. But there came a point when his heart was changed to believe that this man Jesus was more than he saw with his eyes. Have you had that experience? Have you moved? Have you turned have you received forgiveness? Have you been given a place and been set apart? Listen, if you haven't, it doesn't mean you should stop. You should get mad at the preacher this morning and stop trying. It probably means this, and the Lord deposited this in my spirit a couple weeks ago. I'll never be the same after this. It may mean that you're trying to become a good Christian before you've actually become a Christian. 
Because a lot of people come to church and they try to clean up and rehab the outside because they've never saw who Jesus is and let him make them new on the inside. I'm going to describe it like this and then I'll move on. When you have truly seen Christ, you see the world through a completely different set of eyes. You don't feel like somebody who is struggling to be a better person. You feel like a new person living a new life. And if you haven't got there yet, this message is for you. I'm glad you're here. You might leave angry at me. But the rest of this book won't be this intense. But the problem is, the only way this book is going to make any sense to you is if you've had this experience. Because he's writing this letter specifically to Jewish believers who have had their lives transformed by Jesus. And if you put your faith in Christ, you belong in the family of God. If you haven't put your faith in Christ, you may just belong to a church. And they're not the same. See, I came up in one of those real strict churches. I watch them online sometimes. They still like that. Listen, listen. They said they were Pentecostal, but they might as well have been Pentecostal. They called it the church of God. They should have just called it no. Can we go there? No. Can we wear that? No. Can we say that? No. Can we sing them songs? No. Uh, just, just no church. Where do you go to church? No church. Because they were trying to put these fences up to keep us from sinning. They, they put all these rules in place trying to keep us from falling into temptation. But what I'm talking about is falling so in love with this man Jesus. This is what James did. That you no longer have a taste for what you used to desire. That you don't struggle to do right. I'm, I'm weary of living a life where I feel like I have to please God because nothing, Isaiah said, my righteousness is filthy rags in his presence. Nothing I could ever do is ever going to please him. The only righteousness I can claim is the righteousness of Christ. I can't make him any more perfect or any less perfect. All I can do is show up in front of my father and say, I don't belong here, but Jesus is my brother, and I see him for who he is, and he's made me right in your eyes. I mean, you can get married and be tormented by the thought that your spouse is going to cheat on you so you can fix it. Chain them in the basement. <laughs> Listen, I just did a 30-second drive-by counseling session for some of y'all. Listen, if you're going to worry every time they leave the house that they're cheating on somebody, lock them up. They will be faithful. Promise you. Lock the door behind you on your way out. You have nothing to worry about. Done and dusted. Leave them a little snack. When you get home, they'll appreciate you because you got the key. How many of you know that that's not a, that's not a, uh, a great way to uh, get your marriage off on the right foot? It's not the same way with Jesus either. You know how many of us feel like that we have to Worry about cheating on Lord? You know how many of us have lived a life under the dogmatic conception that we are trying to please Him when all I can do is see Him for who He is, confess Him as holy, and that's the only pleasing that I can ever do. When Jesus showed James who He was, James James stopped being who he was and became something new. Many years ago, before I was a pastor, some of you don't know my story, I was an evangelist. Back then, I preached differently than I do now because they're not the same calling, they're not the same gifts, and they're not the same offices. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that there was five gifts that Jesus gave to the church, two of which were pastors and evangelists. I have both callings, both, uh, I have both gift sets. And if you ever have never heard the difference between the way a pastor preaches 
and the way an evangelist preaches. You're about to. Because for the second half of this message, I'm going to invite Evangelist Mitchum to come and finish preaching this sermon. Because I need to open somebody's eyes in here this morning. In your Bible, there's a book called Matthew. Matthew's gospel has a 25th chapter to it. And here's the story Jesus tells in Matthew 25. He says that there were these ten virgins. I need, to, I need to set the stage for you. In a Jewish wedding, they don't just show up on the wedding day, have a license in their hand, say, do you, do you, okay, you're hitched. It's a long process. Months, perhaps years, go into the planning processes of this wedding. When a bride and a bridegroom agree to become one, there's a very specific order that has to take place. The bridegroom goes back to his father's house. It is during this time that he is building an addition onto his father's house so that when he finally comes back to get his bride, he'll bring her to his father's house and there they will be together. While he's gone, say while he's gone. Look at your neighbor say in his absence. Mm-hmm. Uh, In his absence, the bride has some chores to do. One is she ain't supposed to flirt with nobody else. She's not supposed to give herself to anybody else because it is indeed as if they are already married. They're just not together. She is to remain what the Bible calls chaste. She's not supposed to give her affection. I wish I had a witness in this church. She's not supposed to give any of her affection. That's not just loving. That's not just kissing and hugging. That is affection. She's not supposed to be emotionally cheating on him. She's not supposed to be batting her eyes at other men. She is supposed to be chaste. She's supposed to keep herself where he told her to stay and only do what he told her to do. And one of the things she's supposed to do is get bridesmaids. Now, the bridesmaids in Jewish weddings are not like the bridesmaids that you had in your wedding. Because in your wedding, bridesmaids are just somebody that gets uh, to be part of the ceremony. But in the Bible, bridesmaids were sent invitations. Track me. And they have a limited time to answer yes. Because if they're not willing to come, they have to invite somebody else that will fulfill the assignment. They had to provide yes. How many of you have ever gotten a yes from somebody that did not go through with their commitment? Uh I have performed a lot of weddings. And usually in every wedding, something doesn't go quite right. One time we had a groomsman that just didn't come. He just skipped the whole ceremony and didn't even show up. And I know that sounds terrible, but as bad as that sounds, we do it to the Lord all the time. We tell him yes, but then we don't show up to... Y'all not going to help me. See, see, I told you I was going to show up as an evangelist. You don't know me and I don't know you. I'm just going to preach to you, okay? I wonder how many of your yeses have been legitimate. In your life, why are you going to pass? Why some of you going to pass through this water tonight? Because all the yeses that you have given the Lord up to and including this day have been illegitimate. Because some of us had said yes, but what we really meant was, as long as it's convenient, as long as nobody dislikes me, as long as it doesn't make me the outcast, as long as I can keep gossiping, as long as I can keep hating my neighbor, as long as I don't have to witness, as long as I don't have to serve at the church, as long as I don't have to change my attitude, then yes, hey, I'm your man, Jesus. I'm your lady. Jesus as long as I get to determine the outcome but see that's not the way this story goes because God is planning a wedding and he has sent out invitations to everybody in this room and a lot of folks sit in churches every Sunday and they stopped at the invitation which means at some point some preacher said Raise your hand, and you raised your hand. Or they said, come down to the altar, and you came down to the altar, and you said yes to a prayer, but you didn't say yes to the ceremony. How do you know that, Pastor? I'm glad you asked. Because after the invitation, there's another call. And this call says you have to come to where I am 
And you have to be dressed right. You have to leave your former life. Give up everything. Because you have to understand, when the bridegroom left, they had no idea when he was coming back. So when these women committed to the wedding, they had to sell their home, sell everything they had, sell all their worldly possessions because they didn't know when they were going to go back to a normal life. So they were all in. It's at this point in the sermon that I should have you look at your neighbor and ask them, are you all in? But I don't want you to do that because I know. Notice how my whole amen committee has resigned. So they show up, they got the invitation, they've got the right garments, but they need a lamp. The bridegroom has left, they don't know when he's coming back, and they have one job, be ready. And the only way to be ready is to have oil in the lamp. Be prepared. Have you said yes to this man? That's important. But what's more important is follow through. Bridegrooms or bridesmaids' job is not just to stand on the platform and look pretty. They had jobs to do. One of them were supposed to be gathering food. The other one would have been making sure that bath water was ready for everyone. All the bridesmaids had duties to perform. They all had tasks to take care of. And half of them, the story goes like this. When the bridegroom showed up, half of them went to the ceremony. Half of them had run out of oil. When they came to the other bridesmaids, they asked them, give us some of your oil. And the bridesmaids said, there's not enough. I was ready. What you been doing? This whole time, we've been in the same house. <laughs> we've been in the same house, hearing the same sermons, singing the same songs, serving the same Jesus. What you been doing this whole time? How is it that when the bridegroom showed up, I was ready? My wits was trimmed. My oil was in su supply. What have you been doing this whole time? So it goes to show you that folks can hear the same messages, sing the same songs, come to the same altar, serve the same pastor, and have totally different outcomes. And this five virgins said, well, I don't have enough to share. Go down and buy some. And while they were gone to buy some, the bridegroom came, took away the wedding party, and then the five, after they got some oil, they showed up, beat on the door and said, hey, we're late for the party. And somebody came and looked through the door and said, sorry, I don't know who you are. So let me show it to you like this. Half of them got in. Half of them missed it. They all got the invitation. They all said yes. They all had on the right dress. They all received the instructions. They were all in the right place. All of them had a lamp. All of them fell asleep. All of them woke up. But half of them ran out of one thing and missed the whole thing. Here's what COVID proved to the church. Here's what COVID proved to the church. Because a lot of Christians was asleep when COVID hit. And they never woke up. Do you realize that in the world that we're living in today, there's a lot of folks that originally said yes to that invitation? And some of them still haven't woke up? And I promise you the bridegroom is on his way. I promise you that we're a day closer today than we were yesterday. I promise you that there's about to be an awakening somewhere. And that, that, that all God is looking for is somebody that kept flame in their lamps.
Let me break it down for you like this. How many of you remember when you got saved? You remember how on fire you were? You remember how vibrant and loud your testimony was? Like you told everybody. You would not shut up about it as bad as they wanted you to. But you had this fire on the inside of you. So they got excited and they burned hot for a season. But oil was expensive. It cost you a lot to keep your fire burning. And half of them let their fire burn out because I've met people my whole ministry that come into church and they get excited for a season and they burn hot with intensity and they're good as long as they don't have to last two. Y'all not going to help me. As long as the bridegroom shows up quick, I'm good. As long as this thing happens, as long as that trumpet is going to sound real fast, I'll be all right. But they got excited, but they weren't sold out to it. And other things eventually took priority. See, these bridesmaids had to leave their old life to move in. And one of the dangers in a church like Promise of Victory is that our services are so intense that people can get enough oil on a Sunday to feel good without ever really selling out. So some people come to church and say yes to the invitation, but they're not sold out enough to make any changes. Oh, y'all not going to help me? Fine, I'll just, I've told you I'm an evangelist. You've said yes to Jesus, but you, that, all, that, all that changed in your life was you moved the porn from one folder to the next folder. Oh, you sold out to, you, you said yes to Jesus, but you didn't delete that phone number out of your, every time you get lonely, you start, y'all not going to help me. Oh, you said yes to Jesus, but it didn't affect your life enough to make you go home and empty that liquor cabinet out, did it? Because you said yes, but you're not committed. As long as Jesus comes back before I sin the next time, I'm good. As long as this doesn't take too long. And then some of you are self-righteous. And you're looking at these folks saying, yeah, I hope you're listening to him. Because you don't drink, and you don't have no links, and you don't have anybody's number, and you're looking around judgmental at everybody else because of what they're doing, but do you know that you can't just run out of oil and it be a problem? But oil will also go bad. Oil will go rancid. If you don't use oil in a certain period of time, oil will not be useful anymore. So I'm talking to people every Sunday that are judging others because of lack of oil who have let their oil sour. There are people under the sound of my voice, you won't let your car get to 3,002 miles before you changed oil. But you've been running your spirit dry for decades. You haven't had any oil in your spirit. You used to come to the altar. You used to seek the face of God. You used to worship with hands raised and tears flowing. What happened? The bridegroom took too long. You ran out of oil. No, I've still got my oil, Pastor. I'm still devoted. I'm still dedicated. Yeah, but it's stinking by now. It's not useful anymore. So now you're, you're saved, but you can't anchor us. You're just mean-spirited. You're just hateful. COVID exposed a lot about the body of Christ. None of it healthy. It exposed just how deficient the body was. So half of them didn't have any oil and I've been watching I've been watching Christians for years come in and out of the churches with rancid oil they're holding on but to what 
What I've asked God for this Super Sunday is give some of y'all an oil change. Listen, I'm not going to do it. I can't do it. Yeah, we used to have the services where the oil would flow and pastor would scream and shout and sweat through his clothes and run pews. And Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question because some of you, even while I mention it, you're sitting there going, yeah, I miss services like that. Let me ask you a question. What good did it ever do? What eternal change did it ever bring? Because I've, I've met people in altars. We would have them stacked up like cordwood. Stacked on top of each other. Speaking in tongues. Leaving Jesus tracks on the ceiling. They get up out of the floor and go to the parking lot and talk about people. Gossip and backbite. What good did it do? I'm not against any of it. But when that becomes the measure for the oil... We don't understand what the oil is. What James happened, had happened in his life is what needs and has to happen in every believer's life. I changed. I saw this man, Jesus, and I didn't just have an intellectual experience where I know, I know facts about him. I know his book. I know where his house is. I know all of his stuff. I became a slave to him. I left my old life. I changed who I am. And let him be Lord of my life. Listen, I don't pass out rule books anymore. I used to because I was old time holiness. I was old time Pentecostal. And so when you came to the church, we'd start giving you a rule book. I take you back and let you see the Pharisees and find out that that spirit's still alive in the church. I operated under it for a long time. Pharisees are good at taking what God says and adding to it. So I don't give you a handout anymore of list of do's and don'ts. You know why? Because my call is to fall so in love with this man that you no longer want to hurt him. You don't sin because you know it's wrong. You don't sin because you want to live for Him. Chain your spouse in the basement. They'll never cheat. But wouldn't it be sweeter if they didn't do it because they loved you? Because they honored you? Because they wanted only you? So God could chain you in His basement. That's not the relationship He wants. He wants you to come and get filled with His oil. Be so in love with Him that you don't want to break His heart. You don't want to hurt Him. You only want to please Him. So who needs an oil change this morning? I'm going to invite you to come down to the altar. I, I, I know, Pastor, Pastor, I've been saved for a long time. Have you? Have you? Or did you say a prayer? You said yes to the invitation, but you never got ready for the ceremony. Because the Bible says you got to leave the old life. You can't just show up at his house on Sundays and call yourself saved. There's got to be a transformation. James completely changed his life. The rest of these sermons won't be this heavy. Tonight will be. We'll find out who really wants to hear from the Lord tonight. But I'm going to ask you to come to the altar this morning. I'm not even asking you to come and get saved. I'm asking you to come and have an oil change. Because some of you are saved. Your oils just went bad. You've just been sitting for so long that you haven't been on fire in so long that your oil has just stagnated and spoiled. I need a new, fresh touch of this man. I need him to look me in the eyes and tell me all over again that I am his and he is mine. Who wants to come? Who wants to come? Who wants to come up and kneel down in front of this man and say, I'm here and I need you and I need to hear your voice and I need to be set on fire with your Holy Spirit again. I, I, need, you to, I need you to massage my heart. I need you to change my attitude. I need you to heal my hurts. I need you to, I need you to help me see you for who you really are. I said yes before, but God, this is different. 
change my oil. I want to fall in love with you all over again. Help me, God. I want to see you. Jesus, I need to see you. Look me in the eye and tell me I'm yours.